Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. This is Pauline Fromer, your host. It has been so wonderful meeting the listeners to this podcast at the travel shows. You guys have been showing up and it really has warmed my heart. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I will next be at the Los Angeles Travel and Adventure Show, which is in two weeks, and then at the Denver Travel and Adventure Show. Uh, So I hope to meet some West Coasters there. But today's show is going to start with an old friend. She is Andrea Sachs. She is the brilliant journalist who does so much for the Washington Post's travel section. And she has a really interesting new article out right now. It's called All-Inclusive Resorts Want You to Forget their cheesy reputation. Hey, Andrea, so nice to have you back on the travel show. Oh my gosh, that intro warms my heart. <laughs> You're going to make me cry. Thank you. Always oh. chat with you. And I wish I could go to those travel shows. They sound great. Well, this one, this last one, I spoke to, I think there might have been about 1,500 people. Wow. Uh, it was the biggest show I've ever spoken at. It was standing room only. It was amazing. And to me, it kind of showed that that travel was finally back, uh, that people really, really want great travel information, and they're going to the shows for that, but they're also going to the Washington Post, as they should, (laughs) because you guys are the experts. So tell me about this. All-inclusive resorts are no longer cheesy? Really? Okay, not all of them. There's a caveat. Not all <laughs> of them. But they are. I mean, I, I don't know if you've had, I'm sure you've had some experience with it, but mine were all sure. in the past. It just felt like I was at a bad conference food. Um, I always felt like it was a bubble that they didn't reach out to the culture. I didn't even know what the culture outside the gates was. I remember being in Punta Cana and being like, naively, I'm going to go for a bike ride. And then the guard was like, where are you going? Like almost barring me. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to go for a bike ride. He's like, do you have any idea what you're doing? And he was right. Like I got out and there were chickens and cars and potholes and oh. I ended up going back into the resort and swimming and eating pasta, which had nothing to do with Dominican Republic. Right. That's kind of my old experience. But in the past couple of years, they've really opened their minds and catered to, I think, what a lot of more sophisticated, or I don't want to say sophisticated, but more travelers are demanding of their resorts, which would be more authenticity and health and wellness and just being more immersed in the culture. Well, let's talk about being immersed in the culture. I was always struck by the fact that, and this wasn't widely publicized, only us travel geeks know about it. But Pope John Paul II came out against all-inclusive resorts uh, because he felt that they hurt local economies and local people. And yeah, which I thought was pretty wild that the Pope yeah. knew that. I mean, if the Pope said uh, it, it must be true almost. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not Catholic, but, uh, but I, I thought that was very interesting, except yeah. in your article, you show that at least some are now trying to get people off the resorts. How does that work and where does that happen? They really are. And I think in deference to the Pope, what the problem is, it's almost like the Christian mentality. You're on the resort, everything is paid for. So why are you going to go to restaurants and have money spent, you know, additional money that's going to cost you for food or transportation when everything is self-contained? And so that's probably 
been one of the main problems that people want people don't want to spend extra money. So Sandals, which has been in the industry for 40 years and is all throughout the Caribbean, they had some program, one that they just introduced in Curacao. It's high end though, like you have to rent one of the higher suites. But hmm. they have a mini convertible, mini Cooper convertible, and they give you a $250 voucher to use at one of eight local restaurants. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you you drive yourself uh to a to an outside restaurant. That is that's pretty revolutionary for a, an all-inclusive. Okay. Did is this working for them? Are people taking them up on this? They definitely are and they're thinking of expanding it to other islands. So so far it's been received really well. Interesting. Okay, so so that's one case where they're getting people <laughs> off the resort. Are there any others or is that the sole example? <laughs> no, I mean again I I hate to rely so heavily on Sandals, Um, but Sandals does also do a lot of volunteering. So they have a philanthropy branch of their company. And so guests can go help with coral reef restoration in Granada or Grenada. They can go help with, trying to think, in Jamaica, there are a couple programs. So they're taking advantage of volunteerism or volunteering, Uh and that's included. And then they also have a program where you can go read to children, school children in some of the countries. Hmm. So that was kind of oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and beyond going off the resort, more resort chains are trying to bring the local culture into the actual resort. I remember going to a an all inclusive in the Dominican Republic where for a week, I, I you know I chose it because I had kids, and and when you have kids at a certain age, it's very painful for them not to be around other children. It's a necessity like food and water. And so I thought, okay, we'll give them a a vacation where they have an inbuilt tribe. But at this resort, which was an okay place, it was mostly French food because they had a lot of French tourists, some American food, Mm -hmm. some Mexican food, (laughs) but nothing Dominican. It, It was so cut off from the local culture. Uh, But that's changing, right? That is definitely changing. And I can use my experience as a great example. And I'm so sorry for mispronouncing this. I don't know. I don't know if you know how to say it, but it's like X-Karat. I think it's X-Karat. Yeah, it starts with the letter X. Okay. I wasn't sure how in Spanish if you pronounce the X or not. So X-Karat, as we will call it. And so they started, it was an architect who maybe in the 80s, early 90s, bought this property in on Riviera Maya around Playa del Carmen, and there were ruins on it. And he ended up opening a park, which is always setting off alarm bells. I'm like, theme park, but it's actually a cultural park. And they really do emphasize the roof. I've been. It's great. It's really great. I know. I, I went in really cynical, and then I'm the one who went two days in a row and like stayed until they closed and kicked me out. <laughs> and then they so there's now an all inclusive there, right? So they added three hotels, three all inclusives, and it includes eight parks. So I sound like I'm doing promotional material for them, but I was amazed that they had eight parks. Four are kind of within the resort compound. They include all the transportation, even the food and the drink at most of these parks is included and all the, most of the activities. There are some that might charge you a little bit. And then they have some that are off site. And so you visit some of the ruins, you visit some of the cenotes, cenotes, the underground river. Cenotes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, like an hour outside of Playa del Carmen transportation is included. So you really get a nice sampler's platter of nature, culture, adventure, 
you know, kind of a good, and then that to me felt really fulfilling. And then if I had time, but I didn't, I mean, it would take like several visits, I think, to visit all eight parks. Then I would feel like, okay, now I'm going to go out on my own. But I was going to bike ride right. to Playa del Carmen. I didn't have time to. Plus, they told me <laughs> it's a good bike ride. I'm all about bike, ride, bike riding in places I shouldn't. But I was like, I really want to bike ride to Playa del Carmen. I'm like, I don't have time. I only got through one mm. park. Well, and also they have like classes in pottery and mm. weaving and other local crafts. But I have to ask, mm-hmm. to me, I've only been to two all-inclusives, one in the Dominican Republic, one in Costa Rica. The kids were at the center of both those decisions and at both the food sucked <laughs> and you often couldn't get into the all in, uh, they they would have like specialty restaurants so you weren't at the buffet every night but getting into those you you had to wage a campaign and do so often well before you ever arrived at the resort uh so i found it a, an exercise in frustration how is the food and can you vary it the food was exceptional. And I thought it was, I mean, it was definitely always, somehow they always integrated something that was Mexican. And so there was one cantina that was Oaxacan cuisine and it had insects. I'm vegan. So I enjoyed reading the menu and then like laugh. (laughs) But I mean, I was really impressed that they challenged people's taste buds. So they had Oaxacan cuisine. There was one restaurant run by a Michelin starred chef. I went to there and Buffet is the wrong word. I guess it was like a feast with several food stations and it was modeled after a Mexican city food market. And so you had different kind of stations where you could try different kinds of Mexican cuisine and they had you know different meats and tacos. And uh, and they were able to take care of you as a vegan. They were. Um, the beans were a little challenge. Apparently, I learned that black bean, if you want vegan black beans, you got to eat in the morning because I guess they add lard for later in the day. I don't know why. Huh. So, But they were able to run to another restaurant and, and get find me some black beans that were vegan or vegetarian. But they were very accommodating. Like, And they actually had a vegan, <laughs> they had a vegan restaurant, which was amazing. Oh, wow. Here, oh, that is amazing. Um, yeah. Well, at what else I learned from your article, which I hadn't realized, was that the major chain hotels now are getting into the all-inclusive game. Now, they're not going to be called Hyatt or Hilton, but they have bought other chains that have all-inclusives. And you didn't answer this question in the article, and oh. I, I hope <laughs> I'm not going to stump you with it. Can one use points at these all-inclusives? Oh, my mouth is open. That's a great question. I am going to hazard a guess that could be totally wrong. I think yes, but I don't know. Huh. I have to. I will. Interesting. You'll have to have me on for the answer. I will have to ask. <laughs> I know they bought Apple Group, which has Zoetry and like all the meat, a lot of major brands. Um, I don't know. I feel like they should, but I don't know for sure. I don't want to. Interesting. Okay. And has the fact that now Hyatt and Marriott and Hilton and all the rest are getting into all inclusives, will that change them, do you think? Or is it hard to know? I mean, I think it will. I think they keep on expanding. Like, you know, last year, over the past couple of years, they've also been tiptoeing into Airbnb territory and now renting out private homes and villas. So I think they're just expanding and creating more diverse experience. And I know that some of these hotels, too, that used to just have the European plan and so just did a la carte are now offering all-inclusive plans so you have more of a choice. 
And they won't be as mm. comprehensive as like the full-on all-inclusive resort, but you get all your food included, maybe a couple activities. So that's kind of a nice right. option for people, like not wanting to go like full-on all-inclusive, but maybe just dabble in it. Sure, sure. You know, I mean, in the article, you talk about Mexico and you talk a little bit about the Dominican Republic, and those are two places that are well known for all inclusives. Is there any evidence? I'm not sure if you covered this in the article either, so I'm sorry to be hitting you with with questions that aren't in the article. But do you think that this trend of all inclusives is going to expand to places that don't currently have them. I mean, they're, they're, they're right now they're in very specific, usually beachy places. Although Club Med last year did open a ski resort in, in Canada. But do you see this trend going to other types of destinations? I do. And, and I, the, the story was such a beast. Like there were so many things I wanted to talk about and I had to kind of rein myself in, but you're right. Like there's so many different directions you could take with all inclusives. And one is that they really are kind of centered around the craving or the, I feel like the more traditional all inclusive where you have the, the pools and then the beach, but they started club med was the first all inclusive and it opened in Spain off the, this little fishing village in Spain. And so yeah. there are some in Europe and in winter destinations, but I feel like it's a little bit of a different experience than I think when most people think of all-inclusives, they think of lounging on the beach with a tropical cocktail with a little umbrella. But I I do think they're expanding because we are going through, whether this is just a flash in the pan or long lasting, but decision fatigue. And Mm. I think people just kind of want easy. Like we used to we are still independent travelers, but we still love the puzzle of putting together a complicated itinerary. And I think a lot of people now are just tired or they've lost that skill and they want somebody to kind of put it all together and then they can make maybe alterations along the way. But right. fatigue seems and, and you say in the article how much the bookings for all inclusives have shot up in the last year. I think you said more, something like 80,000 more, but I, I can't remember the context of that. Yeah. I mean, I know Hilton, like 75% more rooms that they have. Um, mm. And you have some that I wouldn't even think of them as all-inclusive because they must seem like one of these like new agey resorts, Palmaya, mm. And they have like get in touch with your ancestral goddess and things like that. And it's all, <laughs> but it still is under the umbrella of all-inclusive because everything is included at this resort. So they 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 still had the cheap ones where it's like a hundred bucks a night and it's kind of you know what you what you would expect from the eighties and nineties but some are really stretching and and advancing in terms of what they're offering. Yeah, it's such an interesting development. You you kind of touched on it briefly in your article. I mean, when you look at the roots of Club Med, Club Med was started by a guy who I believe had access to leftover tents and cots that had been used in World War II. And so he wanted to set up this idyllic vacation community where everybody didn't use money and were in this very communal space. It was very kumbaya uh, uh, and then went in a totally different direction. And now it seems to be flowering in, in even more ways. It's, 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 a, it's a very interesting story where this type of vacation started and now where it's going. Yeah. And one uh, so. thing that he would probably be really upset because he did seem to have socialist utopian roots 
And it wasn't yes. kumbaya, like it was, you know, sleep in the tent, like everyone is equal. We all get sand in our toes and in our bed. And But now these another development is that all-inclusives are really extending into the luxury category. So you can get almost like what you see in Tahiti or Fiji, those bungalows over the water. You get swim- mm. that have pools attached to them. So you just open like your bedroom door and swim, but they cost you. They're expensive. And even with that, what we were talking about, the Curacao, the Mini Cooper and the voucher, that's for like the higher end guests. Sure. So sure, sure. comes in ground level, won't get these extra perks. Right. Well, it, uh, it's a, another great article from the great Andrea Sachs. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show, Andrea. Always. Thank you so much. Our next guest, Paige McClanahan, wrote what I think was the most heartening article I've read in quite some time. It's in the New York Times, and it has a Bafo headline. The headline is, could air someday power your flight? Airlines are betting on it. And then the subhead is, new technologies, including one fuel extracted from the atmosphere itself, could make flying more sustainable. But the challenges are many, and the timeline is uncertain. Hey, Paige, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. So I, myself, this summer, as as listeners to this podcast know, I went to the Rolls-Royce factory and spent two days with with engineers, with scientists, and, and it was the most optimistic, positive time I've had in a long time because I learned that really, really smart people are working on... Uh, the climate change issue and travel are working to make aviation more sustainable. But your article went even beyond what I learned. There are so many things that are in the works. So let's let's talk about the science first, and then we'll talk about the challenges to actually making the science public policy, making the science something that the airlines uh, can actually use. So. Let's start with air. <laughs> that that was mind-blowing. How could air in the future be a fuel for a plane flight? Yes. Um, well, I love that you started there. And of course, that's where the headline writer, you know, if, as, a, as a journalist, I don't write the headlines, but I was pleased with that headline because it really pulled out this one technology that I think offers a huge amount of promise and that kind of captures our imagination, too. Um, but just to, to go back quickly, I mean, I think, um, I love that you, I love that you see this as a positive story because that was really my starting point. I mean, there is so much happening in aviation now, um, and, you know, so many promising technologies. And I think the aviation industry and, you know, airlines have really woken up to the fact that we need to go through a major shift to drastically reduce, if not completely eliminate, the carbon dioxide emissions of flying. And like you say, there are so many people who are spending so much time, so much effort, so much money on trying to solve this problem. Um, we have a long way to go, but the truth is yeah, we are sure. we are heading that way. But um, but yeah, to get to this this technology of direct air capture. 
powering your flight from the air. Essentially, you know, scientists have developed these massive fans that scrub carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So they take the CO2 out of the atmosphere, they take apart, you know, the the carbon and the oxygen atoms, they take the carbon atom and they connect it to a hydrogen atom that's been made using renewable energy. And then they can create a hydrocarbon that can be used to power an airplane. So literally, you're extracting CO2 from the atmosphere and using that to fuel flight. This technology exists. Planes have been flown with this fuel. It's just not being done anywhere near the kind of commercial scale that we would need to that we need to see. Now, is this extraction process happening while the plane is in the air, or does it have to happen on the ground, creating the fuel that's then injected into the plane? The the second, you know, the latter one there. Yeah, it's, huh. it happens beforehand. So, you know, the the fans extract the um, extract the CO two from the atmosphere, and then you know, there's a, a process that happens in a factory on the ground. And it produces a fuel that can be then, you know, shipped to the airport where it can be put into, a, you know, an airplane's like fuel tank. So this isn't something that's happening as the plane is flying. It's something that's happening on right. the ground beforehand. And you said this is already happening in planes. This sounds like so cheap. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Why isn't this happening on the Boeing 737 that I'm taking to, I don't know, Madrid? Yeah, well, the key challenge here is cost, namely, actually, the cost of creating that hydrogen atom from water electrolysis, that requires a huge amount of electricity, like a massive, massive Mm. amount of electricity. And, you know, if you do that using electricity from a coal power plant, of course, then you kind of eliminate all of the car, all of you eliminate all of the climate gains. So basically, we need to really scale up the amount of renewable energy that we're producing from things like, you know, obviously solar and wind. And the price of that energy needs to drop so that we have it in sufficient quantities and at a, you know, at a sufficiently affordable price that it can be used to, um, you know, produce the hydrogen that can be connected to the, the carbon atoms to make this fuel. So the technology exists, it's just expensive, but, you know, actually, a report from McKinsey has predicted that the cost of making this type of fuel is actually going to go down so much that it'll be cheaper than what's currently being used in aviation called sustainable aviation fuel, which is basically a biofuel, that this kind of fuel made from carbon from the air is going to be cheaper than fuel made from biomass by probably 2035. So the the cost is going to be dropping quickly. Yeah. Yeah. When when I was at the Rolls-Royce factory in Derby, I was there in the company of a lot of aviation journalists, folks who spend their lives only writing about aviation. And it took me a, a couple of hours to to realize that SAF was an, was an acronym. <laughs> I kept thinking I was hearing things wrong because everybody was speaking in acronyms entirely. Uh, I really had to do some catching up. But SAF is Sustainable Aviation Fuel. It is currently, you say in your article, about 0.1% of the fuel that's being used today. And part of that is uh, because it's, as you said, very expensive. In the ideal, it's used cooking oils, but there are issues with it. It could perhaps uh, be palm oil, which would then devastate the rainforests, or they could use oils and other materials f- to make this sustainable fuel from 
things that human beings need to eat. So there's a lot of issues with sustainable aviation fuel, right? Yes. Um, and I love the fact that you said that all of these aviation um, journalists and other types were talking about SAF, 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 because from my experience <laughs> yeah. in reporting this article, it is certainly like on the tip of the tongues of everybody in aviation at the moment. And the airlines um, are really excited about this. And it does present some really important and exciting benefits. At the same time, there are these caveats that you mentioned that we really need to be to be aware of. I mean, the biggest plus side of SAF is that it reduces over its life cycle, it produces less carbon dioxide emissions than traditional jet fuel. Um, the other big benefit is that it's what they call a drop-in fuel. They can just put it straight into today's aircraft. It can mix it in with traditional, they can mix it in with traditional jet fuel without having to make any big structural changes or, you know, changes to the the planes or the the fueling systems or anything like that. So it's very easy to use. But there is this important question of where you're getting the biomass that you're using to create right. this fuel. And, um, and I interviewed a very smart fellow from the Environmental Defense Fund, which is an organization that do has done a huge amount of work and research on this topic. And he was saying that essentially at the moment, the SAF that is in circulation is untransparent, as in the people who are producing, the companies who are producing this SAF aren't sharing as much information as he at the Environmental Defense Fund would like to be able to, you know, to be sure that the SAF that these planes are, are using is actually, you know, as sustainable right. as they say it is. Um, but yes, I mean, that 0.1% figure is, you know, is an important one. This is really very minor in terms of, you know, how much SAF is being used in the industry at the moment. However, a group of airlines and other aviation industry players has come together and set the goal of by 2030, they want 10% of all fuel in the aviation industry globally to be to consist of SAF. So they're working toward wow. that. Yeah. But the important thing is, you know, as they're working toward that goal to make sure that we don't fall into some of these pitfalls that we were talking about, you know, just now. Well, one of the other problems with SAF is there's no supply chain for it, really, or there's a very minimal one. Uh, it's not like, you know, we have miles of of underground tubes, or not tubes, what, what are they called? Uh, underground... Pipes. <laughs> pipes. <laughs> Thank you. Underground pipes getting fuel, regular fuel from vendor to car to jets to whatever the fuel is being used for. Uh, but there's this is going to be something that requires government support, right? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think at the moment, I'm pretty sure, you know, I'd have to go back and check this, but I'm pretty sure there are only two producers of SAF in the United States that are operating at the moment. And one of them has a big production facility in California, which is why um, the two airlines who I spoke to who are using SAF at the moment, United and JetBlue, they're putting SAF into their aircraft that are departing from, you know, SFO and LAX. So there's just, there aren't SAF production facilities just outside every major airport in the United States, which is exactly right. what you're saying we would need to move in that direction. Thinking farther down the line about this direct air capture approach to fuel, which is essentially, you know, it's 
it's create it's a synthetic fuel, but instead of getting the carbon from used cooking oil, you're getting your carbon from the atmosphere. So it's a similar sort of process, but um, with a different source of the carbon. You know that sort of infrastructure, that sort of infrastructure, you know, equally will need to be rolled out um, huh. around around the country. So you know, like these technologies exist, they're super promising, and at the same time. There are so many steps that need to be taken to get to a point where this is really having an impact. Yeah, this is beyond the scope of your article, but there were a lot of real miracles in the recent infrastructure bill that Biden signed into law. Do any of them affect aviation and what we've been discussing? Or Because I know a lot affect, there's going to be certainly speed rail going to and from major cities and airports. There's going to be a lot of, of upgrades to the infrastructure. Green energy is being supported in a really smart way, I thought. Will any of what we've been discussing be within the scope of that bill? Do you know? Mm, you know, I didn't look into that bill specifically, but I do know that in the U.S. in general, the government is putting out carrots. Like one um, one expert I interviewed described it to me as: in Europe, it's all sticks, and in the U.S., it's all carrots. You know, incentives. We're <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to encourage um, industry to move in this direction, and I know that the U.S. government has invested in you know building these kinds of direct air capture facilities that we were talking about earlier. So I don't, I'm afraid I don't know the specifics of that bill in particular, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were things in there that were encouraging the production of SAF, encouraging aviation to become more sustainable in different ways, but I'm afraid I don't know the, the specifics. Sure, sure. Very interesting. All right. Before I let you go, I think probably a lot of our listeners are, are thinking to themselves, well, what about electricity? You know, we have electric cars. Why can't we do that with planes? So what are the problems with electricity for planes? And, and what are the ways electricity is already being used? Oh, well, yeah. Thank you for that question. If you want to go on a flight powered entirely by electricity, then you need to go to Norway or somewhere else in Scandinavia because <laughs> they are embracing it wholeheartedly. In fact, I think I mentioned in the article that the Norwegian airport operator has set a goal of having every single domestic flight in Norway be completely electric by 2040. So that's not that far in the future. The real challenge, no. yeah, the real challenge with electric powered flight is that essentially you need so much energy to propel a large plane over a long distance. And the current technology that we have in terms of batteries and how much charge um, a battery can store on board an aircraft, those batteries just aren't powerful enough to hold enough charge to propel a large plane over a long distance. But if you're in a place like Norway, where you're going to have a, flight, a domestic flight of maybe 100 miles or 150 miles, in that sort of situation, if you have a plane that has maybe 20 to 25 passengers, now we're talking about something that could be, or that is already, you know, in, in terms of um, test flights and things being powered completely by electricity. So I think, you know, electricity in aviation could be an important solution at the sort of, at the local level for these kind of airport sure. short haul, super short haul flights. But in terms of a transatlantic flight or anything like that, with the current that's far state, in the future. That's far in the future. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I actually sp- spoke to one of the engineers about this when I was in Derby this summer in, at the Rolls-Royce factory in England. And they told me that there could be a hybrid solution in that if planes use electricity just to taxi on the runway, that could be a smaller battery, but it still would save 6% of the cost of the flight. Uh, so what I loved about my time with these engineers, yeah, is that they're looking at these problems from every single angle and realizing, okay, if we can chip away a little here and chip away a little there, soon we're we're making a real difference. And I posted on Facebook about the fact that I was going to England to research this piece. The feedback I got from my friends, they all said, oh God, another thing about carbon offsetting. Whoop-de-doo. Mm. Uh, they couldn't even comprehend that there could be a solution beyond the minimal. But right now we have mostly the minimal. So is carbon offsetting a joke or is it is it something that we should be doing? You know, I think that's a really important question and one that I discussed with several of the experts I interviewed for this story. The real challenge with carbon offsetting is verifying the quality of those offsets. You know, how do you ensure that the money that you're paying to preserve that forest on the other side of the world, how do you know that that forest wouldn't be standing even if you hadn't given that money? Or how do you know that that forest that you're helping to protect won't burn down in a fire next year, releasing all of that carbon into the atmosphere? Right? <laughs> oh, the money that's that you depressing. Put, you know, wow. This is, yeah, this is the challenge with, with carbon offsets. And, um, and one fellow I interviewed who works at the De- Decarbonization Initiative um, at UC San Diego, he was making the point that because the quality is so suspect for so many of these carbon offsets that actually they might end up doing more harm than good, which is a, a challenging thought for those of us who are travelers Ooh. and we're looking for a way to, you know, maybe to mitigate some of the impact of our of our flights. But sure. So I think that's something to approach with caution. I mean, the other thing to say is that there are companies like Climeworks, which um, I don't know if you've heard of this company, Climeworks, they do this direct air capture scrubbing uh, scrubbing of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They capture it and then they actually insert it deep underground in Iceland where it's stored permanently as rock in, in the basalt rock there. So companies huh. like this are coming along and this is verifiable. You know that this that carbon is not going anywhere. It is locked in stone, literally underground. This is the future. And you know, a lot of people want to contribute to Climeworks. At the moment, actually, they only have so much capacity. You know, they only have so many plants and facilities and fans and things. Sure. But they're they're ramping up, I think. So hopefully in, you know, five, 10, 15 years from now, travelers will be able to pay to have their carbon extracted from the atmosphere and permanently stored in a way that you can really know for sure is not going to be re-released into the atmosphere or you're not paying for something that, that would have been that would have happened even if you hadn't bought your your carbon credit. So that's that's an, a promising technology. Climeworks is already doing it. I actually spoke recently with a woman who heads up an organization called Tomorrow's Air that is kind of a collective of travelers who are investing in these long-term solutions for the climate. She was a guest actually mm-hmm. on my my podcast recently. And they actually have, they got in early with Climeworks, so they have a stake in in that project that's ongoing. They've also invested in um, a biochar company that is storing away carbon in a way that's, again, verifiable and long-term. So I would say, you know, for people who are 
thinking about carbon offsets to um, to approach it with caution and try to find the best quality offsets that you can. Um, at the same time, keep an eye out for these longer term solutions and you know try to find ways maybe to to encourage your lawmakers or your airlines to push for um, yeah. for these solutions that will bring us to this dramatic shift that we that we need to see. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like Climeworks might be that. Before I let you go, let our listeners know the name of your podcast so they can find it and, and listen to that. Oh, thank you so much. That's really kind. Yes, it's called The Better Travel Podcast. And the show is really for travelers, you know, the show is really for people who love to travel and who want their travel to have a positive impact on the world. So I like to highlight innovators and entrepreneurs who are doing really good, positive things in the world of travel. We also sort of tackle some of the more complex topics in travel, things like climate missions and over-tourism, but always from a really kind of practical and pragmatic and solutions-forward, I guess, perspective, looking for ways to help listeners navigate some of these issues when they're making their own travel choices. Well, it sounds wonderful. And and that's what I felt about your article. It was it just was such a ray of hope, you know, <laughs> among all the darkness. It, it really was was terrific. And so much information squeezed into one very readable article. So thank you again. Oh, well, thank you so much for the kind words. Yeah, reporting that one was a real workout, but um I've had some <laughs> great sure. I've had some great feedback on it and it's wonderful to um to be able to contribute that to the conversation. Yes, thank you. And and that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening and to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Watching cable